Hey everyone, how are we doing this morning? Good. So Bevan said we made him be the connection director. My PR rep would tell me we strongly encouraged him to be our connections director. <laughs> there may have been some bribery involved with him giving him the opportunity to buy donuts and stuff for Saturday morning events, and Bevan likes donuts. All right. So thanks for being here this morning, and thanks for figuring out our new service times. You guys are on time. Well done. Yeah. When somebody starts strolling in at 9.45, we can all point and laugh. I'm kidding. <laughs> Don't do that. Because <laughs> that might happen to you sometime, and you would hate for all of us to point and laugh at you. All right, let's pray, and then we'll jump into the sermon. Lord, our Father, we thank you, Lord, for being with us. Thank you for being a God worth worshiping and praising and singing to. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be set right towards you today, that, Lord, as we open your word, as we explore your truth, Lord, that you would convict us where it's appropriate, you'd encourage us where it's appropriate, and, Lord, that you would just lead us into all truth, into closer communion with you. Help us abide in you more, Lord. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Our campaign is called Pray Like Jesus. So very simply, um, what we've been doing is just looking at the prayer life of Jesus and saying, how can we pray like that? Um, I'm going to be kind of brief in the intro because I've done, gone through the intro a bunch and hopefully you've heard it before. And I've got a lot to cover today. So um, I'm going to move fast. And you're like, why are you still talking about it if you're saying you're going to move fast? I don't know. Um, yeah, so we're just looking at the prayer life of Jesus, and we're going to try to pray like Jesus. Uh, last week uh, on Easter, we started looking at what is commonly known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. Okay, Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prays with his disciples at the Last Supper after the farewell discourse. So this is just before he's about to go to the cross. This is before he goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's sharing this intimate moment with his disciples where he's, he washed their feet. He's praying. He prays with them at the end here. He tells them he's leaving. And they're all like, you can't leave. I'm like, no, we don't know where you're going. How can we follow you? And, and Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life. All of these like beautiful and, and, and memorable things that Jesus says happen at the farewell discourse in the Last Supper. And at the end of it, Jesus prays, um, which we should not find to be all that surprising because Jesus seems to pray a lot, one, and specifically when he comes to uh, like really defining definitive moments in his life and ministry, uh, the gospel authors document Jesus carving out more time to pray. So uh, what we learned from that is when we are facing crises or in difficult moments, we should pray just like Jesus did. And here we're looking at how Jesus prayed in the high priestly prayer. So last week we talked about some of the resurrection themes in the high priestly prayer. Jesus started out in the first five verses praying for himself, uh, praying that he would be glorified so that the Father would be glorified through him. And then he prays for his disciples, and then he prays for those who will believe the message of his disciples. So we're going to, and we kind of touched on some of those. We touched on the joy piece. We touched on Jesus praying for uh, those who believe on account of the message of his disciples to be with him where he is. We touched on those last week. Today we're going to go through the rest of it, okay? And there's a lot here. 
And uh, before we even start going into this, um, man, I don't know about you, but like when conventional wisdom within the church has been like when you first start exploring Jesus or like getting to know Jesus or like asking the questions, who is this Jesus guy? We always encourage people to read the Gospel of John. I'm starting to second guess that. The more I read it and the more I study it, it is so complex. And John uses a lot of images and a lot of things that you have to know from the Old Testament to have any concept of what he's actually saying here. And he does some deep dives, which we'll see pretty quickly here. So I've been encouraging people to read Luke, but you do you. It's all good, okay? You should read it all. But John can be quite confusing sometimes. So... Let's start. We're starting here in verse 6 where Jesus begins praying for his disciples. He has just prayed for himself. Now he is praying for his disciples. So all of this he is communicating to the Father, praying to the Father. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Let's pause there. Well, first, we can read one more, one more sentence. He says, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Okay, so last week we saw this too. Jesus saying, uh, describing his disciples and the people who believe in him and are following him as those whom you have given me. Okay, kind of strange language, right? Because we could also just like rewind in the Gospels and see at the beginning of the Gospels and how Jesus called his disciples to follow him, right? He some of them who are fishermen, he came up to them and said, uh, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He invites them to follow him and they do, right? But here he's saying that God gave them to him out of the world, okay? So what we see here is this kind of complex theology of John and in the scriptures, it's everywhere, where it's this balance between God's sovereignty, God's plan, what God does, and what people do, okay? Last week, I called this like the boring stuff. I got to apologize. This isn't boring, okay? <laughs> this is good stuff, and we should be interested in this. I shouldn't have said that, because this is super interesting. This is fascinating. Even in this just one line, what is he saying that God gave them to him? So what we see is in some sense, the disciples coming to Jesus, following him, believing in him, is God's doing, and in some sense, it's what they did. Okay, Acts 4, 27 through 28 kind of gets at this tension and this difficulty between what God does and what people do by saying this, for truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. And he says this, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. See that? See that tension? Okay, so the, uh, the, those leaders who crucified Jesus and the people who did that, they did that, but God had predestined that to take place, is what Luke says in Acts there. So, even in the simple language, uh, those whom you have given me out of the world, God chose them. Paul calls these the elect. God chose them. Jesus invited them. And here we see that they kept God's word. He says, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. 
So we're going to see this tension continue to build. For I have given them the words that you gave me. Okay, so, and they have received them. Okay, so God gave them to Jesus. They have received them, and they have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Okay, this is going to come into play later, so I'm not just like mining the depths of theology for no reason here. We're going to apply this later. Uh, so we see here this tension, this relationship between divine sovereignty and human freedom. Okay? This, is, this is a big topic, and I'm just going to touch on the surface of it. But what we see throughout Scripture is this concept known as compatibilism, okay? that how God works and how human works and how humans work from our perception, it, it's very complicated. Okay? We see both taking place. And here in this question of salvation, uh, which Jesus seems to be speaking of here, the question that has plagued the minds of theologians and followers of Jesus for 2,000 years is which one logically comes prior, okay? Does God's work come prior or does our human work come prior? Now, you've heard, likely heard this referred to as the the conversation between Calvinism and Arminianism, okay? Calvinists would say that God predestined and chose the elect first, and then he gave them the grace to believe and to come to saving faith in Jesus, okay? The Arminians, they would claim that in some way God looked into the future, God saw who would believe. This is like a middle knowledge type uh, philosophy, maybe Molinism. There's some different elements of Arminianism, but whatever. So God knew who would choose him, and then they became the elect. Okay, because we have to deal with this language, right? God gave the disciples to Jesus. You, you have to deal with that. Paul talks about the elect all the time. Predestination all the time. You can't honestly approach and engage scripture without dealing with this and coming to some sort of settled position in your head, okay? That's why we're talking about this. So, the Arminians would say that God looked into the future, saw the elect, who would believe in him, whatever, um, and that Christ gives, and through Christ, God gives prevenient grace for all humanity to accept and to believe in him, okay? And then they freely do so. Some do, some don't, okay? So, <laughs> it gets complex, right? <laughs> you guys following me? Tracking with me? Okay. Some head nods, a whole lot of just stares. We're crushing it today. Good job. Good job, Pastor John. Okay. Um, <laughs> if I can encourage you to do one thing in this conversation is not just say, well, I feel like this is true, so this must be true. That doesn't matter. Your feelings really don't matter when it comes to this, Okay. Uh, it's what God's word says. And we're going to come to this, what Jesus says later. So honestly approach scripture, engage with scripture, and kind of take a mental note whenever you're reading scripture and you come across language like this, and, and process it and think through it. Because it's what God's word says that matters. It's not how we feel that matters. We believe that God's word is truth. So when we come to truth, as Jesus is going to say in a minute here, we have to wrestle with that and conform our thinking and our behavior to the truth that we find in God's word, not just how we feel. Deal? 
Yeah, everyone's not excited about that, but that's true. We should do that, okay? So, my study of Scripture has led me to embrace that first position, the Calvinist position that I mentioned before, when it comes to God's grace being given to us first and God choosing us and God saving us. Okay, now, there's plenty of room for Christians to disagree on this. This is a non-essential issue, but I think it's very important. And this is gonna come into play in how I apply this later, okay? So, keep that in the back of your mind. Verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So when, Paul says, or when, when John here says, keep them in your name, he's kind of using the same idea that the Apostle Paul will adopt later, the in Christ terminology of us identifying with Christ, so that our identity is now in Christ. And we're going to see here, he kind of introduces it in praying for the disciples that they may be one, this unity theme. Jesus prays for unity a lot in this prayer. It's a super, super important theme. And his, his prayer for unity is based in the unity of the Trinity. Okay? Father, Son, Holy Spirit being one in three persons. One God in three persons. They've existed eternity, internally, um, forever in loving, perfectly harmonious relationship, okay? Okay, so now you see why I'm like, maybe we shouldn't encourage people to read John first. We've gone into like God's sovereignty and human freedom in just a few verses and the Trinity, okay? Complex stuff. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. That's referring to Judas. So he's saying that he has kept them in the sphere of his name and in Christ, believing in him. Jesus has kept them, and he's guarded them. Now he's, he's saying that Judas's betrayal was not a, his failure. It was so that the scripture might be fulfilled. This has always been a plan of God. It's not that Jesus had Judas a part of his, of, uh, of his group and was among him, in him, and now he has betrayed them. No, this is so the scripture would be fulfilled and he was never really a part of them, okay? Jesus makes that clear. This isn't his failure. It's not like he picked the wrong one and Jesus is like, oh no, Judas, ah, <laughs> should have known, should have seen this coming. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. That we talked about last week. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Okay, the world here, it means humanity in rebellion against God, humanity living in sin under the power of evil and the devil. Jesus is not praying for them. He is praying for his disciples here and those later, those who will believe in his message. So Jesus is leaving. They're staying in the world. He's praying for them because they're going to face a lot of heat being in the world still. He says, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Sanctify is a word that we don't use often. Who's used that word this week? No. Okay. Maybe if you were in a Bible study, you used the word sanctify. Sanctify them in the truth. It's a word that means make holy, set apart for service to God, okay, is the idea. Uh, sanctification in John's gospel is always for mission. It is always for mission. 
follow, his followers are set apart. They're called out of the world. They are made holy for the sake of the world. So when we talk about holiness in our culture, we tend to only mean it in the sense of moral holiness. In this day and age, uh, there was that connotation, but also the connotation of ceremonial holiness. So like, uh, and sometimes both of them are in view, like here, likely both are in view. Um, Jesus says that they will be made holy by their adherence to the truth, and God's word is truth, okay? So that kind of uh, tends to imply the, how, our mission to adhere to the scripture, to live our life under the authority of scripture, and the more we do that, we become holy, right? We become more set apart, more distinct, more separate from the world, and for mission. And then, in verse 19, or verse 18, as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into, world, into the world. Holiness, mission, holiness, mission, always go together. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. Consecrate is the same word as sanctify. Just means make holy, set apart. I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So what we see here is this, likely the sacrificial theme from the Old Testament, just like the lamb was sanctified, set apart, and sacrificed for the sins of the people to make them holy and to make the land of Israel holy. I've linked you to a Bible Project video on this in the devotional that'll help explain it a lot. Um, Jesus is saying he is now doing that. He has sanctified himself so that through his death on the cross, that those whom God has given him now become sanctified through him. He imparts his holiness to us. In John 15, three through four, a few chapters earlier, he says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. It's that same idea, that Jesus, through his work, sanctifies them. This is also like the salt and light idea that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. Light is kind of like the metaphor for holiness, being called, set apart, being different, unique. Salt is like the metaphor for being useful to the world and staying in the world. They have to both be in play in the believer's life. We can't just be holy and in our little holy huddles and avoid the world and stay away from the world because, ew, the world is gross. We can't do that. That's not the way of Jesus. We are holy. We are set apart to engage with the world, to love the world, and to show the world the light of Jesus, and to be useful to the world. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also those who will believe in me through their words. Now he's praying for those who don't yet believe, but who will believe in the disciples' word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Okay, so he's praying for unity among the church and those who believe. And he's, his reason for praying this, he says, uh, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, so based in the Trinity, and I in you. And then he says, that, so why would we be united with him and the Father? That they may also be in us. So here we get to this deep divine mystery of when we believe in Jesus and we are among those whom the Father has given to Christ, we are in Christ. That in some way we identify with him and experience the life of the Father and the Son and the love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in some beautiful way. That we can be in him as well. And again, permission, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And our unity 
amongst the believers in Jesus and the church should be a signal to the world of God's love and the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and their perfect love for their, um, amongst the Trinity, okay? Are you guys tracking? Cool. Don't try to like memorize all this. This is all in the devotional too, so you'll get it again later this week. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. Okay, it's getting redundant, right? <laughs> You're repeating the same thing over and over again because it's really important to Jesus. The unity of the church is super important to Jesus. So that the world may know that you sent me. And again, for mission, and loved them even as you loved So when there's unity within the church, it shows the world that Jesus was sent by the Father and that the Father's love amongst the Trinity becomes evident. Angie, you guys can come up and get set. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, we talked about this last week, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So here we see the whom you have given me language applied to all those who will believe later on the part, on the part of, the, of the disciples as well as the disciples themselves. Because part of the tricky part of interpreting this is do we apply the words of Jesus that he speaks to the disciples? How do we apply that? Do we apply that to just them in their day and age? Can we apply that to us? What's the relationship there? We'll talk about that more later. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I. In them. So Jesus will continue to reveal himself to his church, to his disciples, and that the, that the love in which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So that Jesus may be in them and that we might participate with him and identify with him and experience his love, his love, love that is shared perfectly in the Trinity. Let's pray. We'll sing, and then I'll come up and apply this. Lord. Father God, first of all, just thank you for sending Jesus to reveal the Father to us, to reveal your will, to reveal how to live, Lord, to reveal what it looks like to live a life that is set apart and holy for you. Thank you, Jesus, for sanctifying yourself, Lord, that through you we can be made holy and made clean. And Lord, we thank you for, for your protection that you give us in your name. And Lord, we pray for the unity of the church, and we pray, Lord, that Jesus, you would continue to produce unity in us, and pray for that, and mediate for us. Thank you, Lord, for how you do so. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Before I even like get going with this, I just want to say, guys, this is
been a tough year for a lot of us, <laughs> right? But my soul has been really heavy. That's the way I can think of to describe it. This whole year, and I think what we're going to talk about now is in part why. So this is tough for me to preach. It's tough for me to go through and to talk with you about. And I'm praying for you that as you hear these words and as you hear this, that you will go back to Scripture, go back to prayer, commune with God, and explore this as well for your own life and for others, and to see if this is true according to God's word. All right. First thing that we see is that Jesus prays for our protection. He says, keep them, guard them throughout the prayer. Now, again, this is one of those that's, uh, when it comes to applying text, we don't want to just jump to what Jesus says to the disciples and say that we can apply this to ourselves today. He's speaking, to, praying about the disciples specifically. But what we see elsewhere in Scripture is that this is similar to how he prays for us. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, talks often of Jesus mediating and high priestly ministry for all believers. In Hebrews 7.25, he says, Consequently, he is able, speaking of Jesus, to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. In John 6, 37 to 40, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And then he goes on to say that he came from heaven to do the will of the Father. And he says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So if you are among those whom the Father has given to Jesus, Jesus prays for your protection and preservation in the faith. I think the first thing that we should do when we hear this is take comfort in that. We should take comfort in the fact that Jesus prays for us, for our protection, for our preservation in the faith. And this is why I kind of articulated the different theologies of Calvinism and Arminianism and how you think about these things and why this is important. If Jesus is mediating between you and the Father for your protection in the faith, will he be effective in that? Yes. I have a hard time saying that Jesus is a bad mediator, that he's not doing his job. And that's why he prays, and he mentions Judas was not a failure on his part. It was a part of God's divine, sovereign plan. Jesus doesn't fail to protect those whom the Father has given him. He mediates between you and the Father perfectly. In 1 John... First John is kind of like John's extension or continuation of this. First uh, John chapter 2, verse 19, he says, They went out from us, speaking of those who uh, were of antichrists. Many antichrists have come, he said. He said, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. 
So we're saying as those who have left the faith, they were never really in the faith. They were never really in Christ, okay? So we need to take comfort in Jesus praying for our protection. We should pray for others like that, for Jesus to protect them, to guard them, to keep them. And those who are not, perhaps Jesus was not mediating for them ever. Which is a tough truth to swallow. Next, Jesus prays for our sanctification. As this text says, Jesus consecrated himself so that they would be sanctified. In Christ, he has imputed his holiness, his righteousness onto us to give us right standing before God. That's that ceremonial sense that we're right before God. But then he prays for his disciples to be sanctified in the truth, that is, to adhere to the truth he revealed about God. To everything Jesus taught, adhere to that. Everything Jesus, the way that he lived, adhere to that. And how we now know that is through Scripture. He says, uh, your word is truth, right? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So what he's saying is God's word is, when we adhere to that, that's how we are sanctified. And so we live our lives under the authority of God's word. So when our thinking, when our actions come into conflict with God's word, it is our thinking and our actions that change not God's word, correct? Cool. <laughs> and this is for mission for the world. This is for us to be salt and light in the world. We're not sanctified, as I said before, to go into our holy huddles and to avoid the world, to isolate and insulate ourselves from the world. We are sanctified by Jesus to go out into the world for mission, to represent him into the world. But that also means that we can't just conform to every pattern of the world and every way of thinking in the world because we must be holy and be sanctified and set apart and be different. John talks about this in his epistle as well. He says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So he's getting at the same idea. That if you are among those who have been given to Christ by the Father, you will walk in in the ways of Jesus. Maybe not perfectly. You will progress. You will grow. You will become better at this. But ultimately, when you come into conflict with something in Scripture that conflicts with the way you think and act, you change. You develop. You grow. And you change. So when we don't see this happening in our lives... What is the conclusions that we must come to, as John says? The 
Perhaps the truth is not in you. Perhaps you are not in Christ. Again, another bitter pill to swallow, but one that you must. If you have not seen sanctification, if you have not seen growth in your life, perhaps you are not in Christ. And that is something you need to get on your knees before the Father and say, Father, reveal this to me. Help me to see the change in my life that you are bringing. The Holy Spirit produces the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And if you have not seen those growing and developing, perhaps Jesus is not mediating for you. Because when Jesus mediates for you, and if he is praying these prayers for you, they are effective. Next, Jesus prays for unity. Okay, quickly, unity does not equal uniformity. You've heard that cliche, I'm sure. Doesn't mean we have to agree on everything. So what's the solution here? I've quoted this to you before, multiple, multiple, multiple times. In the essentials, unity, in those essentials of the faith, who Jesus is, salvation by grace alone, through faith in Christ, those essentials, the main things that you have to believe to be a Christian, we must have unity in those. In the non-essentials, even things like Calvinism, Arminianism, right? Liberty for those, that we can disagree on some of those things. In all things, charity. We must all love one another. The question that has been weighing on me this week is, is why does the church seem so divisive today? I think there's lots of reasons for that. One is our sin nature, right? We're just sinful people. Division, the devil likes division. God likes unity, like the Trinity. Also, I mean, our church tradition came out of Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. It came out of a division of sorts. Now, when Luther started down this path of finding the truth of what Scripture said, he wanted to reform the church, the Catholic church, but they tried to kill him. So he ended up starting a separate church. But even that had a lot of the same elements to it as his former church. So what we know is there is good reasons to promote disunity when the teachings uh, are not in line with the essentials of the faith. And then lastly, our, our culture is one of, of personal liberty, where personal liberties are valued way over the greater good. I, I don't even think I have to make this point over the last year. We've all lived through it, right? Our personal freedoms and personal liberties are valued so much more over the greater good, even though, even though we serve a Savior who gave up his personal liberties and freedom to come to earth, be made man, to die. Not just a death on the cross, not just a death, but a death on the cross. In humility, he did that. He gave up everything for us, for the elect, to save us. Even though that is our Savior whom we serve. Yet we still struggle with this. Now, I'm not saying, 
again, that there's never a case that we should make for creating disunity in the church, right? Protestant Reformation is a good example of that. Pastors, teachers have often used this teaching as a cover-up for their moral failings, for abuse, for sexual misconduct, and saying, oh, you're creating disunity. No, 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 no. When there is sin at stake and we should be following the word of God better, we should all be holding ourselves under that authority in repentance and striving for greater holiness as Jesus prays in the second thing we talked about today. So on those matters of essentials of the faith, if the church is not teaching those, that's a good reason for disunity, for Moments of moral failures, you don't have to follow that pastor or that church and continue attending there, not bringing them up or staying quiet about those things because you might promote um, division and not unity. That's, that's flawed. That's not good thinking, and churches have often abused that, okay? We need to strive for holiness, too, within our church to be more like Christ. So, guys, why this is weighing very heavily on my shoulders. For this week is, I'm begging you to just pray. If you are, I think if Jesus is mediating for you, these things we will see in your life. You will see sanctification. You will be kept in Christ. We will see Unity, because this isn't a small matter for Jesus. It, our unity in the church represents the love between the Trinity. That's a big deal. When we are not loving one another like the Trinity loves one another, we're misrepresenting God. That's not a small thing, church. And we're ruining our witness to the world around us. So when we look at what's happening in our culture right now, where church attendance has just dipped below 50% since. <laughs> it's the first time it's ever happened in American history. It's been plummeting since 2000. It was hovering around 70% from the 50s until 2000, and now it's plummeting. It's below 50%. Why? What is going on? In part... think church is not representing the unity and the love of God very well. Because that is our mission. That is for our mission. And I think part of the theological undergirding underneath that is perhaps a lot of us just never were in Christ. <laughs> so that is my prayer for you is that you will wrestle with this and say, God, am I seeing these things in my heart, in my life? God, am I in Christ? Show me. Show me the fruit of you being in my life. Pursuing love, pursuing unity, pursuing sanctification, holding yourself under the authority of God's word. If you see this progress in your life, those are good signs. But we must examine ourselves to see whether or not we are in the faith. Scripture tells us to do that. This is a healthy process. And we must examine ourselves and see, is Jesus really mediating for me? And if I'm not seeing these things, maybe he isn't. 
I need to go back to the start and confess him and know him and believe in him and trust in him for salvation. I'm just going to give you a couple of moments right now to do that, to just pray. And then we're going to sing one more song and close, but let me pray for us first. Lord, Jesus, we thank you for praying for us. Thank you for revealing your word to us. Thank you for who you are. God, I pray as we examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith, and Lord, as we look and see, are these characteristics growing in us, being developed in us? Are they a work of your spirit in our lives? Lord, would you produce fruit? Fruit that abides, Lord. Help us to not just be shallow followers of you, but Lord, to abide in you as your word says. You call us to closer intimacy and communion with you, Lord, to experience your love, the love that you have within the Trinity. Lord, we beg you for that. And we ask that you would make your church and the love that we have for one another and the unity that we share together look glorious for the culture, for the world to see. And Lord, for all of those whom you are praying for who have not come to believe in you yet, God, we pray for them too that the church would look beautiful in our love for one another and for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So take a moment, just sit and reflect on that, and then we're gonna sing one more song together.